Welcome to The Problem, a Lockwood & Co. podcast. I'm Caitlin. I'm Alan. All right. So this week we're reading part two, which is titled Before, chapters five through eight. Yeah. Uh, in chapter five, Lucy recalls how she first learned about the problem, joined an agency in her hometown, <laughs> and why she ran away to London. I can't say agency. We've all got random words that don't work for us. I feel like there's a difference between like, I have agency in this situation and there is an agency that deals with this problem. I feel like those should be sound different, I think, mm. is the problem. Chapter five, we start off with like some, um, some history. Yeah, so this is a big time jump. We jumped out of a burning building and now we're in Lucy's childhood. Yes. I like the chapter art on chapter five. It's like creepy ghost in a marshy. I don't know. Yeah, it's very surreal. Like yeah. It's all silhouettes. I like it. It's cool. Spooky. Before we get like the history of the problem, we get this story about Pliny. We like jump way back in yes. time. And so I love this because my entire like my personal relationship with the historical character of Pliny is all from the medical podcast Sawbones, where they pretty much just talk about how wrong he was. Oh, yeah. I, you know, like the Greeks were doing their best, man. What do you want? Oh, like I, you know what? They do say that also that like when we didn't know, we just tried everything. Yeah. You know, so and he wrote it down. So like it helped. To be like, this is what people tried, but... But no, if anybody wants a good chuckle about serious medical problems, I recommend Sawbones. <laughs> this is also back when, like, in ancient Greece, I think the idea was that if you're, a, if you're a smart person, if you're an expert, then you know about everything, right? Yeah. Like, you, yeah, you would know about biology and astronomy and mathematics. You'd be, like, a total stone-cold expert. And we just don't believe that that's a good way to do things anymore so but this is a real like i went and looked it up i was pretty sure the first time that i listened to it that this is like a real thing from Pliny, and it is and it's pretty much what she says it is what i like about it is how you know like Pliny's whole story is pretty much what you would think of if you're like somebody starts talking about a ghost you're like i know what ghosts are they're like an apparition that you know just appears to a person and it may or may not talk it's not very dangerous it's just like a vision that you're having and this like takes that archetype and then lucy's like i don't buy it and here's why because this is what ghosts really are and kind of like recalibrates for the story how ghosts work and how they're actually dangerous i i do like how it you know, goes into that storytelling and world building. But also I like, I like how it implies that ghosts were always real, but something yeah. happened 50 years ago that really fucked everything up. I like that too. It, and it taps into a kind of trope of, and I don't, when I say trope, a lot of people mean, you know, like, oh, this is a bad thing. I don't mean that. A trope of like urban fantasy where there's like, you know, elves and, all of that kind of stuff. Pe regular people are like, well, that's not real. But then in the urban fantasy, we know as the readers that like all that stuff is real. And the there's like an underbelly to the world where it, it all exists. And this is kind of like, hey, yeah, all that supernatural stuff that people said wasn't real for so long really is real. Mm. We just don't understand it. 
completely. So along the lines of, of what you said with Lucy saying that she doesn't buy it because of ghost touch and blah, 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 blah. If we were to take the Pliny story as truth and that, you know, it's just that something happened 50 years ago that messed everything up in a big way. Is ghost touch a symptom of this new pandemic of ghosts? Like previously were ghosts, did ghosts not do that? Oh, yeah, that's a good point. So, yeah, this is like a new wrinkle that why Ruby doesn't. Do you mean that's Lucy? That's not right. It's Lucy. <laughs> We're not it. even talking about the show. I know. She's in my head for the character, though. I do definitely yeah. see Ruby Stokes when I visualize this. So when Lucy is like, I don't buy this, the information is wrong. Uh, what it really is, is that there was a change at some point. That's it, it's something to think about because I could I I don't think it's ever addressed in the books, whether or not like I don't think we come back to that point. But I could see it happen. I could see it being a thing with what we learn about the problem. Yeah, I really like that. Or just maybe the ghosts before didn't feel a need to touch people like mm-hmm. that sounded whatever um like maybe they were all type ones you know just uh-huh, floating around uh-huh. but there's something about what's happening now that makes the ghosts angry right yeah there's definitely a difference yeah now and and it's an aspect to ghosts that is unique to stroud and so like i always <clears throat> so i have like all my own personal like trying to figure out stories and it, like nomenclature around this stuff i think of this as like the hobbit effect is what i think of it as Mm -hmm. because in tolkien he's like there's elves and dwarves and orcs and like all that stuff comes from well-established mythology and then Mm -hmm. he's like but you've probably never heard of hobbits and hobbits are blah 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 blah." because that's like his thing right and there's like an almost like self-conscious like sorry about my thing but let me explain it to you uh and this is like the Hobbit effect for Stroud, where he's like, my ghosts work this way. Yeah. So it's really, it, yeah. Uh, just to sum up, it's good writing on two levels. It's interesting getting kind of summing up all the world building that we got spread out across the first couple of chapters. And then also just interesting to think about why is this happening? What's going on here? Yeah. And it's also, we talked about this in the show. I think it's really strong for drama reasons to have ghosts that are like very dangerous yes and we'll get more because you know like we knew that they were dangerous when they were in the haunted house but it's it's not very explicit like everything runs by really really fast and i think this slowing down and going back in time does a really good job of going back over the rules like you said yeah in a really methodical way to so they get imprinted on us and it's it's so interesting, and we're going to get it a couple times in these chapters, how all the danger is couched in humor. Yeah, yeah. So it never, like, it's like, oh yeah, it's super dangerous, but you never really feel like anybody's in danger. Yeah, it's really hard to pull off, I yeah. think. I didn't like this, I gotta admit, um, the first time that I read it, because I so enjoyed the very first lines where she's like, I'm not going to tell you about how things started out. Uh, we're just going to jump into it. And I was like, oh, cool. And then it, it like did this big time jump. And I was like, oh, don't do this. Don't. But then after a little while, I have to admit that I was like sucked into it and just forgot that they jumped out of a burning house. Yeah. <laughs> and I think some of the best moments in the book happen in this section. Like when I think about this book, there are moments in this part two 
that are the moments I think about. For the show, like episode one is still my favorite. Like it has none of my favorite moments in it, but just as a whole, it is my favorite whole episode. And yeah. I, I love how through this flashback, and I, I do think the show does it a little better because you get to know all of her friends and or some of her friends and like, you know, you really get to feel Lucy as a, I mean, you get to feel Lucy in the book too here in this flashback, but you really get invested in her story in it. And I think yeah. that's, I just think that that's really good and I like it. It's crazy how they stuffed part one and part two in one episode. Yeah. And did it so like strong. Yeah, it's really good. I will say that in the history lesson here, we do actually mention Kent again about how the problems seem to have started up in Kent and Sussex, which right. we just mentioned last week about how does this come up again? I don't know. And then it kind of did. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and we also get our first mention, not our first mention of them, but our first sort of concrete information about Fitz and Rotwell, mm-hmm. where Lucy is thinking or says, or I don't know, it's her narration. She says, at last, two young researchers, Tom Rotwell and Marissa Fitz, managed to trace each haunting to its respective source, blah, 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 blah. And they sort of started the ghost hunting. Yeah, it was like there was a big crisis. People didn't understand how to deal with it. And they systematically laid out that source hunting procedure that we talked about last time. It's like a really important step in the world to making everybody feel safe, Mm -hmm. I think. Um, the first time that I read, uh, I, well, the only time that I've read The Empty Grave, I thought that, which is the final book in the series, mm-hmm. that everything that is sort of revealed about Penelope Fitz and her family kind of came out of nowhere, or parts of it kind of came out of nowhere. So I personally, during our reread project here, just wanted to really pay attention to anything that happens with Marissa Fitz. When they're mentioned. Yeah, yeah just because I want to see if I just wasn't paying attention, which is highly possible. I sometimes don't. <laughs> I think it's really hard to write serialized fiction, too. And there's um, whenever I'm analyzing a book, I try to analyze it on its own. No, I'm not saying that you shouldn't do what you're doing, but I always try to analyze it as its own thing, almost disconnected, even if it's a series, mm-hmm. because it's so hard, I think, to write a book and for it to be coherent. And if you hook it up to a series too much, it ends up being like it It doesn't even feel like a book, if that makes sense. It just feels like like one hanging part. It can be really disappointing to read in a suit. I'm, I'm thinking specifically of like some of the mid Wheel of Time books. And like I would read those and be like, nothing happened in this book. And it's like a thousand pages long or something like that. And it's like because it, it doesn't have like a beginning, middle and end of itself it's just like picks up where the last one left off and then ends right that makes sense i I, like i wasn't necessarily saying it was bad i i really enjoyed how that all played out character wise and like parallels between lucy and sort of who ends up being at the final kind of showdown as it were i that was great so smart i just mean i didn't notice if it was set up at all and i wanted to see if it was so yeah it's totally fair wasn't a criticism or if it was it was of my reading comprehension yeah i don't know i don't even know what i'm saying like <laughs> writing a series of books is hard and sometimes it's hard yeah yeah <laughs> yeah that's fair um so after you know talking about the start of the agencies lucy does have this line that i don't know it made me think of alan where she says none of this actually solved the problem of course <laughs> yeah 
So, and it just makes me think of how you always bring up, or I guess both of us do, about how fucked this whole system is. Yeah, it's just a Band-Aid. Yeah. Um, yeah. I I put down here, I highlighted um, where she says, and because of extreme psychic sensitivity uh, is almost exclusively found in the very young, mm-hmm. this meant that whole generations of children like me found themselves becoming part of the front line. And it was like, ugh. <laughs> it's that- terrible. See, I highlighted that because it says almost exclusively found in the very young. And I'm like, that Mm -hmm. doesn't say it's not in adults. Yeah. And they say sometimes that like adults who had psychic ability when they were children can still like they can not see, but like kind of sense like, oh, there's something over there. There's something going on. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's just like duller for them or something like that. I wish we got more information about like exactly what age you are when you start to lose your talents or or in a range because I'm sure it's different for different people because even mentioning Tom Rotwell and Marissa Fitz they call them young researchers which would suggest that they're like college age. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you don't get the sense that like the nation rallied to a 12-year-old and a 14-year-old yeah. or something like that and like they solved their problem. It, that doesn't feel like what happened. Um Yeah, but I really like that part because it's such a good summary of like all of this stuff is a good summary of the alternate history in the world. Yes. And like how the world came to accept or at least, you know, England uh, came to accept this like widespread exploitation of children. And they were like, (laughs) this is just how it is. You know, like what choice do we have? Yeah, I I do wonder... Like, it doesn't matter to the story at all, but just because I love world building, like, I love good world building, I would really love to see what ghost hunting or whatever is like in other countries. Like, what the volume of ghosts are. I know, I think about this all the time. Do they have the same, like, agency, like, children and supervisor setups? Do do they have their own DPRAC? What what is that? I want to know. I, I need, I want it but the series the book the books are done <laughs> mm-hmm. and they, yeah, don't, they just don't care about that yeah the kids don't care so we the readers don't get to know that's fine yeah, yeah, yeah. moving on this is actually as as an adult who reads quite a bit of young adult and middle grade fiction sometimes when i read middle grade books if the when the world building is so good i just i'm like can i tell this author to write adults in this world right yeah (laughs) (laughs) because i want it i want i want to go deeper it's funny because a lot of i think this is like a trope of children's fiction that's really necessary like how do you tell a story about kids where the adults just aren't constantly like getting in the way and interfering right and so it always requires this like really big world building element that takes the world of adults and children and like bifurcates them in some way. So like in the Narnia books, they're like literally in a different world. Right. Yeah. But then in this case, there's just like some kind of weird age thing where kids have powers and adults don't. And so like, that's how it works for the purposes of, you know, on the plot level so that these kids can have agency in the story and like can do things that adults can't so that they can get into trouble and have a, an adventure. But it's like, that's super interesting. Like, what is it to be an adult after you've had these powers and stuff? Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, like, how do you feel as a legislature 
who's, you know, a person who has to vote and say, like, more kids should die this week, you know, because, like, we need this thing done. I mean, I think the politicians are fine with it if they're anything like our modern, our, you know, real world (laughs) (laughs) politicians. Yes. They are fine with it as long as they get money. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) As long as their kids aren't the ones on the front line. Yeah. Well, I'm sure that they have, like, a ceremonial. This is getting dark. Let's move on. Um, (laughs) So then we get sort of oh i wrote down we get with about lucy's childhood here that lucy's childhood childhood in the book is somehow better than what they showed us in the show but it is still very terrible yeah she's more cheerful it seems like uh here in the book about going into the whole thing she's like this is cool yeah and i do all these things like i'm learning new stuff i like you know i'm taking care of the salt and magnesium and all of that stuff and not like uh, I'm separated from my family. I feel unsafe. I'm unhappy. None of that angst is in here that was in the show. Yes. But there is still like, you know, her mom took her to Jacob's when she was eight. And I can, I still picture that scene from the show with an eight year old, mm-hmm. you know, of her mm-hmm. saying yes to all those dangerous things. And then, and where's the money going? My bank account, bitch. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, I want her mom dead. <laughs> <laughs> It seems in the book, too, that she is the only one who's able to do this. And you can understand how I'm not making an excuse, but you can understand how with seven kids and the husband's dead that she's like extra income. Absolutely. Take like you're going to feed and clothe her and I get money like great. And it's like that makes a lot of sense to me in a terrible way. That's like kind of how the foster system works sometimes, too where the kids will be taken away from the adults and they're and they're like great um because i can't take care of them anyway Uh, yeah i'm not saying she doesn't make sense as a character i'm saying i hate her as a character it's terrible i i also just we don't have to talk about but i do like lucy's first sort of ghost encounter with her sister oh yeah that's uh super cool and how it shows how the problem is not just in kent and sussex and london like it's everywhere because she lives yes. up in the north of England. Yes, that's true. And just and I like her relationship with her sister, which in a way, I actually think the show deciding to cut the sisters was better just to isolate Lucy. Mm-hmm. But I, 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 I don't know. I just like that scene. It speaks to like something deep in her character, too, where she's like able to have courage for the ghost and to protect somebody else. It's like she's almost, you know, like she's a ghost hunter right there. Yeah, she even kind of says that, but like, but I was a plucky little girl, small and dauntless, Mm -hmm. which I mean, all right, be a little full of yourself, but (laughs) (laughs) she's not wrong. Yeah. Anyway, I just, I love Lucy. I could talk about Lucy forever. So let's move on. Yeah. I like how she doesn't, I don't like this, but like, I like how unselfconscious she is about like all the traumatic things and how she doesn't go to school and she like thinks that all of she doesn't have like a reflection of like this was bad for me yeah she doesn't go to school she doesn't learn anything she's just exploited for her talents and how all of that like feels good because she feels useful and special and you can see how kids are like sucked into this system like it's dark only if you have the awareness of the darkness like this wouldn't feel too dark for a kid I guess. Yes, it's good writing because Lucy feels happy and fulfilled where she is. So, right. 
like if a 10 year old is reading this book, they're unless they're really reading between like, I don't want to disparage the reading comprehension of a 10 year old. Yeah. Um, but like, I don't think it's going to give them nightmares about how they're going to be exploited for the rest of their lives and just be a cog in the machine. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But you can see it. It's yeah. There to, yes. Yeah, it's but it's there. there if you're, yeah. If you have the sophistication, there is like a little dark note just dropped in the middle of all this where she's talking about her team and stuff. And she says like their names, if you're interested, were Paul, Nori, Julie, Steph, and Alfie Joe. They're all dead now. And then yeah, it just keeps going. I hadn't, I'd completely forgotten that the names were in the book. I thought Nori was just, you know, I think because a complete the way creation. that it's dropped. Yeah. You know? I'd yeah. forgotten about that. So that was nice. Not nice because they are indeed all dead now, but you know. Yeah. But that's just a part of the whole, I mean, like that is just like learning how to, you know, mix the salt and magnesium and all that stuff. Like, oh yeah, they're, they're all dead. Like, yeah, it's just the thing. Um, and then we learn about Jacobs a bit and how he kind of went from, you know, what seems like a decent supervisor, but then was like ostracized by the town, even though also kind of, uh, like seen on a pedestal, which I guess is also mm -hmm. ostracizing, but, and how he slowly just got more and more scared. Which it's kind of a shame they didn't have time for that in the show because that's like an interesting character arc, you know, that mm -hmm. he was this really good agent, but then he lost his talents and couldn't hack, couldn't hack it anymore. I like how Lucy internalizes that change in his character too, that there's something about him where that he loses his nerve and his courage. And this comes back in other chapters in this section. And so she like sees any um, emotion or like move towards intuition on her part as connected to that lack of courage in him. Mm -hmm. And and so the way that she's like internalized his um, falling apart is somehow like he's he was too emotional. I need to be more stoic. I need to be more in control because I'll just give in to the fear. And it's like she took kind of the wrong lesson, I guess, is what I'm saying from him. Lucy is always like like this, I don't know, ball of contradictions because she does think that and will say that on that. Not say, but, you know, in the narration. God, that's complicated. Or I'm making mm -hmm. it complicated. She will say things like that. But then she's always like she's always advocating to try to talk to the ghost to get to the emotions yeah, I think in this first book, especially, this is the arc for her. That yeah. she starts out like, this is bad. And then she like learns that actually like this might be the best thing to do. Yeah. Anyways, so then everybody does. <laughs> right. Everyone's dead. The thing. Okay. I have this one random thing that is like, I don't know why, but if I got to ask Joe Cornish one question, this is the question I would ask him. And that's why did you change the name of the mill? Because in, in the book, it's Withburn Mill. And in the show, it's like Morgrim or more or something like that. I don't even remember. Wow. And it's such an insignificant change that doesn't matter at all. And I can't. So why did they change it? Like the answer doesn't matter. It, it doesn't change anything. But they still <laughs> took they still like took that step. I wonder if one's real or something. Maybe. Yeah. I want I need I need an answer. <laughs> it, that's funny that that's so what you would much. ask him. You're like, we have to get to the bottom of this. <laughs> so something that is different in the book that I, that makes me like really sad for Lucy, <laughs> well, you know, um, amongst everything else that we've been talking about is that she's kind of like locked in the mill 
with her friends who are dead or and or dying and has to find her own way out through a window. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, that's I forgot about terrible. That. Yeah, she and she like climbs out the top or something like yeah, that. Yeah, and then probably jumps down because I guess, you know, may as well start how you mean to go on. <laughs> that's right. I'm thinking of how that's also the opposite of what happens later where they come from underneath uh, to get out too. So, Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah but like yeah, she's, she says like a, a wind came along and knocked her off her feet and shut the door and the walls shook and... Then she was just stuck in the darkness and had to get herself out as she ran towards the screams. It's really terrible. There's a really visually evocative thing, too, that they didn't do in the show that when I read it here, I was like, oh, maybe it's a missed opportunity. But maybe there's I don't know, maybe there's other reasons why they didn't. But it says um, I twisted my head, looked back down the passage and across the foyer towards the open door far off in the distant dusk. I saw a cigarette's pinprick point of red as like he's just standing there yeah watching it all happen but the only thing that you can see is like his the cigarette the cigarette yeah. yeah most kids tv shows don't like to have smoking so that's, that's what probable. i thought too yeah, yeah. I, and then i i just wrote down like we've been talking about this a lot actually but just jonathan stroud's ability to write these truly dark shit but keep it kind of light and adventure yeah it's i think it's really important uh I think I forgot to say this last time, but there's uh, or if I did, I'll just edit it out. But I think there's like this whole thing about to me, like humor is in a book is like whenever I come across it, I'm like, oh, this is life. This is like I think it's so important for an author to include humor in their drama because it's like drama just gets so closed off and dead and feels unreal after a while it just feels so constructed and fake after a while if there's no humor at all mm -hmm. and the it really like opens things up and makes it more lively when things are funny that's like what real people do and real people like when shit gets dark and things get hard they make jokes about it like that's how we cope yeah and so it I just really appreciate the ability to do that in the fiction and it. it's so important. And I think it's like just as a theme to put that life and death right next to each other is also like what these kids lives are and stuff. So I just really appreciate it. I'm just trying to see like it says that she's eight when she goes to Jacobs. But do we know how many years like do we know how old Lucy is? Yeah, there's she talks about getting her level two and then three but level three but there's no i get no sense of like her age as that happens i feel like it's years in between yeah i i do i think of her as being 14 at the beginning of this yeah, book. yeah 13 or 14 when she at the end of this chapter she goes to london and i i don't feel like she's like 10 or 11 or something no 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 and throughout the five books about two-ish years pass i think Mm -hmm. So that would put her as 16 at the end. And that feels about right to me. Ugh, so young. Like I have two teenage girls and I just can't even imagine. They're like, I'm going off to the big city because you're terrible. <laughs> like, oh my God, what a nightmare. <laughs> well, I assume you haven't, that they've had less trauma in their childhood. And unfortunately, trauma makes people yeah. grow up faster than they should. I hope so. I, I don't know. <laughs> 
Right. Not to give you the benefit of the doubt or anything, but yeah. I, I assume you haven't been beating your kids Mm-mm. or sending them into life and death situation. No, not. Well, you know, sometimes if I'm scared to go, then yeah, then I send them. But right. Otherwise. Chapter six. Lucy interviews to become an assistant with Lockwood and Co. and is hired on the spot. Oh, I hate that she's an assistant. Yeah, that is what it says. Though. Yeah, no, you're right. Although, to be fair, they don't ever treat her like one. Uh-uh. Yeah, I, I don't even know what it means. Is it like like she's supposed to take notes and stuff or they're just like we I think of it as more like an assistant agent, like a junior yeah. agent, because, you know, in book three, when they hire like an actual assistant, they don't have a note about her being, you know, under 15 because <laughs> yeah. which is such an odd this whole thing, like well-dressed, preferably female and not above 15 years in age. And then, mm-hmm. like, apply in writing with a photograph. With a photograph. Why? Yeah, yeah maybe it's easier to tell, uh, like, people lie about their age and be like, I'm 14. And then you look, you're like, okay, you're, you know what? That's 19. fair. That's, that's fair. It's not that Lockwood and George have a collection of photographs of I teenage girls. <laughs> I really hope not. <laughs> like, what do they do with the photographs afterwards? I hope they just chuck them. Anyways, yeah. the chapter art is, of course, Skull. Skull. Oh, yeah. In the uh, ghost lamp. Yeah. And jars. <laughs> I know. There's a, there's a good picture of the logo of the company there, too. Yes. That I was like, oh, yeah, okay. Um, whenever I see a picture, like an accurate picture of the skull jar, which is just a jar with a skull sitting at the bottom, I always think, I think it was, I think it was Jonathan Stroud who tweeted one time who was saying, like, or maybe he said it in an interview. Shit, I... Should have looked this up. Anyways, he said something like, you know, I do always picture the skull floating in the jar, which is Mm. how most people draw a skull. But Mm -hmm. it is just sitting like the skull is not anti-gravity. No, I think it even at one point um, in the book says that the skull is bolted to the bottom of the jar. Oh, yeah, maybe. So it's interesting how people draw that. Like the face can be floating in the ectoplasm or whatever the heck. Right. But the skull itself is always sitting at the bottom. I think that in the show, it looks as good as you could possibly do it. Yeah, it is funny. It is a funny idea, though, that like you could turn the jar around the way that it is in the show and be like, now it can't see us. But of course, like the face could just like go around it. I don't know. Yeah, I I love in the books how they're all just like throw a tea towel over him. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Even here, he has a polka dot towel over him. Yeah. Oh, skull. <laughs> so um, Lucy then lists a bunch of agency, like Lucy's arriving at 35 Portland Row. And before, just before she walks in, she lists all the agencies that turned her down and she didn't even try it, Fitz. I know. I noticed that, that she didn't try Fitz or Rotwell. She's just No, like, she did well, try no Ro- Rotwell. She did. Oh, yeah, you're right. You're right. But not yeah, Fitz. Yeah, she didn't even try Fitz. Yeah. I, I would assume that she went to Rotwell first and they said no. And then she was like, okay, so let's not even bother with Fitz then. We'll try the smaller places. <laughs> Looking for a job is really hard. It's the worst. Yeah. I hate my current job, but that's fine. I'd rather that than looking for a new one. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. That's part of the nightmare of capitalism is like, <laughs> yep. it's even harder to get another job than to get the job you don't like. Hate's a strong... Uh, we don't need to go into it. Anyways, um, so then we get, like... Like, the show did this next scene word for word, so I I don't have anything new to say. Yeah. And this is this chapter really is the thing that I was talking about, of, like, when I think back to the first book and some of the most important 
things. It's all the stuff in this yeah. chapter, the interview and meeting George for the first time at the door and all of that stuff. Yeah. And just the, the immediate dynamics that they have, mm -hmm. like their first conversation is pretty much how, how their relationship goes on throughout this book. Yeah. There's so the whole book is like from Lucy's POV. We talked about that and it's in the first person. And I think that there's a sense in which Lockwood's looks and George's looks are a reflection of Lucy's feelings about them to some degree. Like you could read these as like it is an objective fact that like George is sloppy and just like unappealing and hard to be around. And Lockwood is a bright, shining angel of beauty and charisma and handsomeness. But like, I do think there is a little bit of like Lucy's feelings coloring all of those descriptions. 100%. When she says yeah. George's face is uniquely punchable. <laughs> it's really good. Like, calm down. <laughs> <laughs> That's the meanest thing. His backside calls out for a kicking or whatever. Yeah, I it think maybe you just don't like him currently. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I like how these things evolve too. Um, yeah. her descriptions of them. So I just really appreciate like that her voice is like a the entire picture of the world that we're getting is like through the filter of her feelings, and we shouldn't take it, all of it like too literally. Yeah. Uh, I will say before she hates him, she does describe him a little bit more objectively. And I do enjoy how Stroud describes his hair as, as a texture that reminded Lucy of a horse's tail, because I've never heard hair described that way, but I picture it exactly. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He is the, the whole thing's very evocative. It's easy to picture George at the door. Like it's all of this is very easy to picture. Yeah. Oh, I don't know, because I they did the this whole bit so well in the show that that's what I see. So uh, I don't remember. Like, I read this first, but I I don't remember what I pictured. The show has taken over. I don't know if that's good or bad, but it has. Yeah, because George is so different. Yeah. In his physical appearance to the George in the show. Um, but I think all of that's a pretty good choice anyway, because like I love him yeah. in the show. I I'm I am still sad that they've made him not be fat. Mm-hmm. I don't like that either. But again, they kept some of the fat jokes and you can't I don't know. Which is weird. So they had to not have him be fat because you can't <laughs> anyways. Whatever. Moving on. Um, yes, Lucy meets Lockwood. Oh, okay, so then when she's talking to Lockwood for the first time here, he mentions like a famous ghost thing that happened up in her town and lucy's like oh yeah i was very young so before she was an agent um but she, like everyone was told to board up their windows or whatever but she still peeked out and i just uh i just think that's interesting that she's always kind of been drawn to ghosts mm -hmm. and not not afraid to like bend the rules and like yeah yeah and i i wonder if that's because she has this connection to them that no one else, very few, no one else we know of currently has it. Mm -hmm. And, and, and maybe that like, even then she, 
she felt them more than other people. Yeah, that's the impression yeah. that you keep getting. And I like how no one, like everyone is like, oh yeah, you ha you have the talent, but no one finds it too remarkable how strong her talent is. And, um, and she doesn't even really realize it. But when you're reading back through these books, you'd be like, yeah. oh, it's all kind of here. There's lots of clues that she's just stronger than a lot of other people. Well, when we were talking about this during our show episodes, I always think about something that you brought up with how, you know, she didn't really feel safe and comfortable until she got to Portland Row. Yeah. And that is when her power sort of really started to grow and how her, her power felt nurtured there, I suppose. Mm -hmm. And I really like that. Uh, yeah, I think that's yes, a real thing a thesis, because like their culture is so different yeah. than the other agencies. And it's like, yeah, it's uh, it's the whole thing around the procedure of finding the sources and stuff. They and that's a big part of this interview and what makes Lockwood different because they go through like her history and that's where all the other interviews stopped. And it it's like oh, you were not able to follow the procedure correctly and you mm -hmm. like stepped out of line, then we are not interested in having you. Uh, and Lockwood doesn't care about your ability to follow the rules. He cares about like how strong is your talent? What yeah. are you going to bring to the team? I feel like not following the rules is a plus at Lockwood right. and Co. <laughs> yeah, it might even be what we're looking for, yeah. actually. <laughs> I do also like when Lucy is describing what talents she has. She says that she has a bit of touch, capital T, and that, but that she uses it sort of to trigger her listening. And that's interesting to me because we never really meet anyone who has just touch, no listening. And I'm like, well, what does it, what does that look like? Like, do you just get mental impressions? Yeah. In, I don't know what to say. I wanted to say in real life, but like the, term for that is psychometry right yes um, yes yeah which is like a whole different thing of like reading the history of objects it's kind of what she does during the interview yeah yeah but she does it by hearing their echoes or whatever and right. i i would imagine that somebody with touch who doesn't have as good of listening just gets like flashes or images or something i don't know that's interesting i wonder if yeah. touch can exist without sight or without listening or yeah, does he get sucked into like a full sensory vision? Yeah. Like I want more. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and then we get when she's talking about her past, and I just point this out because when she says our arrangement ended abruptly, I can't hear anything other than Ruby giving that line. <laughs> and then almost immediately when when Lockwood says uh some other time, then that just sounds like Cameron in my head. Yeah, there's a lot of that. Yeah. Um, even listening to the audiobook. Yeah, no, I, my mind just immediately replaces it. Yeah. And then we learn about Robin, who jokingly died. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Robin. Oh, he moved on to another job. Perhaps passed on would be more accurate. Yep. <laughs> and then, ah, good tea. Ah, good tea. Yeah, th this is a classic <laughs> Stroud, like, wow, that's dark, but that's funny moment. Yep. <laughs> Uh, and then Lucy and Skull meet for the first time. Yeah, I love this. She taps the glass. It's Skull. Um, that was my note. It's Skull. Mine is just Skull with an exclamation point. But yeah, same thing. I'm excited to get to the rest of the books for more Skull. 
Yeah, yeah. I have when I read the third book, I I was like, oh, we're gonna talk about Jungian shadows, and we're gonna talk about it. Like, <laughs> oh, <excited>. great, wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love Jung. He's my favorite. Yeah, yeah. Jeez. Um, I don't, I don't really have any notes. Lucy does the interview. She reads mm-hmm. the objects. Oh, I have this one because. <laughs> So I was kind of listening to the audiobook and reading along in the book at the same time. And so I just happened to notice that there's a word change uh, on, well, well, in my book, it's on page 86, uh, where Lucy's talking about the watch and how no one should be touching it. And then she says, in the book, it says, certainly not for a lousy interview, but in the audiobook, it was certainly not for a stupid interview. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, that's an interesting word choice to change. I know that. In when I sent my kids to school right away in kindergarten, they were like, you don't say stupid ever. Um, Really? Yeah. This is a big like, don't this is a bad thing to say uh, for some reason. Like it is like treated as a swear word in children culture now. I mean, okay, I don't remember the intricacies of language choice from when I was young. Or, or like in the single digits, but I feel like stupid was treated as like the swear word we could say, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, I agree. Um, or you might even be called stupid by an adult. I can remember that by like, you know, people in the administration at a school. So like now it's, it's just like a complete off limits word. So I know Stroud in the interview that he did on that on that podcast, the writing podcast, he talked a lot about like he would write things and the even his British editor was like, you can't say that. <laughs> like they were constantly toning down his language. So, uh, so like he was trying to write real teenagers and then he was like, no, we want parents of teenagers to buy these. So, yeah, yeah. I think he said like the opening line was something like. We really cocked up all those oh, early yeah. missions or something. And they were like, dude, you, you can't say that. What are you doing? So that's funny. I think that's the better way to write, though, is just like really put it out there and say what you want and then try to recover the tone in editing. If you. Have oh, to yeah, absolutely. It. Write what you want to write and then add the marketing afterwards. Yeah, that's funny to notice that. That little difference. I was like, is she going to bring up cookies again? But no, I, was, I honestly, really good. I wouldn't have even noticed that if I hadn't been listening and reading along at the same time. Uh, I just most of my highlights through this thing are like, there's a joke. There's a joke. There's a joke. <laughs> like the yeah. moment where Lockwood's like, oh, for a moment there, I thought you were psychic. I am. I mean, in an unusual way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I did wonder maybe you know more about this than me, but I feel like neither of us are going to know this where they talk about her being from the Cheviot Hills. I think that's how you say that in North England. And I feel like this this should mean something like it's, it's like loaded with implications in the way of like, if it was a story set in America and they were like, you're from you know, the Appalachian mountains in Kentucky that I would understand like, oh, this says something about economics and education. And now you've gone to like Washington, D.C. or something like that. And I I don't think that like Stroud should explain it. I like that it's not explained, but it feels like loaded that she's from North England in a way that like, I just don't know what it means. 
Um, I have never been to the north of England. Sadly, God, I would love to. Uh, I've mostly been down south, spent a lot of time in Southampton, um, which by the name I would assume is as south as you can get in England. <laughs> Could be wrong. Uh, just I just but from like British period pieces that I've watched quite a bit of, I do sort of feel like the north is poorer. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that is. Or like it gives that impression, you know, like you get that from her talking about her father as like, yes, really rough and drinks beer and hits the kids if they get in the way and stuff. I definitely associate the North of England with coal mining, and I do not know if that is accurate to the geology. I think that's right. I think that's right. Yeah, which is not like aristocratic work, right? Yeah, exactly. Unless you own the coal mine. But even then, I feel like <laughs> yeah. London aristocrats probably look down on you. Yep, yep, yep. 100%. Yeah, so I don't know. They they kept bringing it up and, and I was like, I think this is supposed to say something to us about Lucy as like a little bit more working class, a little bit more hard scrabble. And this is like a part of her identity. Yeah, I think. Yeah. As somebody who doesn't obvious, who really truly does not do voices or accents and the the first audiobook narrator who does the first two books whose name escapes me, she doesn't really differentiate the accents either. The the second uh audiobook narrator who does 3 to 5, I think she does that a little bit more, but I never really pictured them having different accents because of that, but they absolutely would. I know that the the audiobook narrator for the last three books is from uh, North England. Oh, that and makes sense. Yeah, that's part of why they hired her. Um, I was just trying to look it up <laughs> to see. Yeah, in the first book, it's Miranda Grayson who narrates the book. She right. has lots of narration. She, she does a really good job. She just doesn't yeah. differentiate the accents at all. and mm -hmm. And therefore, it just sort of never really occurred to me and emily bevan is the other bevan yes is the other narrator who and i think that part of the reason why they settled on her was to do with her accent and stuff that yeah. she was like really felt to them like lucy so then chapter seven in which mm -hmm. lucy takes a tour of 35 portland row and gets to know her co-workers better i have actually no idea what this chapter art is supposed to be it's a dude in a top hat who looks like he's hanging from a chain. <laughs> I'm trying to flip there. Oh, yeah. What is this? It looks like he's a dead person hanging from a chain. Oh, you know, it's got to be one of the, the mummies that they... Oh, yeah. the yeah. In the basement that they practice on. Yeah, Joe um, and Esmeralda or whatever. Right, right, right. I didn't picture them so dressed up. This is dark, though. It's like... looks like a dead body. Yeah. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't look like a straw uh, anything. Yeah, but yeah, we get a tour, and Lucy moves into her attic room. Oh, oh, there's there's a mm -hmm. thing here that says like I really like this detail, and it wasn't so much in the show, although I guess it could be in the future. The living areas, for instance, had all sorts of hidden doors that opened onto weapon racks or swung out to become dart boards, or spare beds, or giant maps of London festooned with colored pins. And I just like that the house is like full of secrets and like. Yeah. All kinds of, yeah, like little hidden nooks and stuff. Yeah, Stroud really made it like a kid's dream house. Yeah, but it also like speaks to, 
I don't know, like something about Lockwood himself that like, like the house is full of secrets. Lockwood oh, yes. himself is like very mysterious. Yeah. No, no, I, I had this, I meant the same thing that you did that like, oh, this is such a, if you're a kid, you're like, this is awesome. Um, but it's also like symbolically right. resonates. Um, I wrote down when Lucy's just sort of asking him about the house, he says, uh, well, it belonged to my parents then. It's mine now and yours, of course, for as long as you work here. And I, that's just a really nice line because I think a lot of people would never say that, like that the house is yours, not just you live here too. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah. ju- I like how that was worded. It just feels incredibly welcoming and like... The house is yours. Do what you want. And you can sleep here as long as you don't displease me. Yeah. <laughs> Which feels like that's how it would have been said. It fits or rot well, but right, yeah. here it's like completely different. I mean, do what you want. Just don't go in that room. Right. Which I mean, that seems like fine for one rule, you know? Yeah. You can do anything you want in this garden. Just don't eat from that apple tree. Over exactly. There. <laughs> no wonder she's fascinated. Yeah. Yes, the tour continues. We learn about the thinking cloth and oh, and like all the stuff that they have in the basement. Like they're always they because they keep some of their sources and they have their big case book. I like that stuff. The how George is like organized everything by category and mm-hmm, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And we're first introduced to the idea of type threes and that nobody has ever encountered one. We're not sure that they actually exist. George is just super prepared. <laughs> right. I don't I don't know if you listened to that uh, interview with Stroud on the writing podcast thing. I have not yet. I don't know why I haven't yet. I absolutely should. I'd want to. (laughs) I don't know. People who have listened to it would know the little piece of trivia that the thinking cloth was completely stolen from his daughter. Um, Oh, that they were on a walk or something like that. And they were just talking about ideas and things and. And his daughter, you know, like little daughter was saying like, there should be a tablecloth and you would write things down on it and little notes to each other and you could draw pictures. It just basically creates the, and she named it the thinking cloth. And he was like, well, I'm just going to take that and put it in my story. (laughs) And you're a kid, so you don't get money for it. Right. Yeah. (laughs) You get to go to college later. Yeah. I'm I'm kidding. (laughs) That's fun. I I absolutely should. I don't I do not know why I haven't listened to it yet. Yeah, I think I just highlighted here a bunch of more jokes. I walked in on George doing yoga in the nude. With difficulty, I drove the image from my mind. Um, I just love all the jokes. I I mean, I do think the George ones go go a little far, although I guess not yet. But yeah, I, I do think there's an important thing that's happening here with George where the uh, so i already said you know like lucy doesn't like george and so like he's being painted in this very unlikable unsympathetic way mm-hmm. and there's a lot of distance between her and george and i think all of that is intentional for what we're going to get in the next part where that gap closes and so it's um or it closes not so much for the two of them but i feel like it closes for us as the audience So I think our feelings are being calibrated towards George to like have a lot of distance and maybe even some disgust with him. And then we're going to have a switch next time to feel more close about him or like understand him better. And you can't feel closer to him without having the distance, I guess. Um, So I feel like that's part of the work that's happening here. 
Right. And just before she goes into George's uniquely punchable face. Oh, slappable. <laughs> I'm so sorry. It's slappable. She does. She talks about Lockwood for a bit. <laughs> And putting aside everything else that she says about Lockwood, she does say, here was someone I felt I could follow, someone perhaps to trust. Mm. And I do like that, that she feels just contrasted with Jacobs is really good. Although, of course, the next line is, but George Cubbins, no, he bothered me. Right, right. Yeah, I think that's also one of the things that George is doing here, like, you know, in the mechanics of the storytelling is that he is a contrast to Lockwood. So we like Lockwood more yeah. because we like George less. Yeah. And that that's also like a really useful way that they're being used. He's not just contrasted with Jacobs, but um, with George. Yeah. I, I do like how he like pushes Lucy out a little bit before that, where they are talking about, you know, the house and stuff. And she's like, you know, what about your parents? And what about that door and he's like i'll show you the kitchen now like he just completely avoids the whole thing he's like i think george is making dinner like we're not gonna talk about that like yeah it's just totally off limits and then eventually she does talk to george about it and we learn lockwood likely has a tragic backstory because everybody's got their tragic backstory yeah and then the chapter ends with this really great line where she says but it already pleased me to think of walking into darkness with lockwood at my side <laughs> I think this is like I was sending you messages during the week as I was rereading and I was like, is this flirting, Caitlin? Do I <laughs> do, is this banter? Is this what is this? I, I don't know. I just think it shows that like she immediately trusted him. She was immediately mm -hmm. intrigued and wanted to go into danger with him. I mean, going into danger is literally their job. Yep. True. And then in chapter eight, Lockwood and Co. solve a type one haunting and Lucy gets more comfortable at Portland Row. The chapter art is spiders. So many spiders. Yeah. Because um, we get world building around. About the spiders, yeah. Yeah, animals and ghosts. Yeah. So we get our first meeting with a client, which will happen a lot over the next five books. Yeah. I like how this guy is presented to us um, with, there's like an ironic distance that we have to him because mm -hmm. he's not he's not presented in any flattering way mm -hmm. and i think that we're supposed to sense that he has a certain amount of prejudice he's they specifically say that he's in his early 60s which means that he is older or like was alive pre yeah problem so a lot of his sensibilities are still seem to be like situated in a pre-problem world like he doubts his grandchild's ability to sense anything he doesn't think that it's possible that he has a haunting but he is somehow like scared and he's like i guess i should check it out yeah he sounds like oh i don't even know how to describe it sounds like you brought your grandfather to a hospital you know yeah and he's like somebody says i have a problem i don't think right. i have a problem I don't like doctors. I don't believe in all this science yeah. stuff. But and it's I so guess. interesting because he just doesn't seem to trust his granddaughter at all. And I'm like, dude, but like children the are the- world you live in. Yeah. It's yep. interesting. That's what I like about it is that, yeah, it's his age and and all of this stuff. It just tells us a lot about the adults in the world, I think, and the kind of denial that they live in. Yeah. Ten bucks says this guy goes by ghost touch. <laughs> obviously like i want him to you know gets himself in trouble i don't yeah i don't think we're supposed to like him yeah and 
And I really like the way that Lockwood handles him, um, is able to like ask questions that get the information that he needs, but is never like rude to him um, because they need the money. He's a client. It just all feels like, oh yeah, this is how work is. And like the people that you have who deal with the customers have to have this touch. And I, I just think all of this is really good. Yeah. And then, yeah, we learn about cats and spiders. Yeah. I don't know that there's any explanation in the world for that. It's just like a feature that. Yeah. Spiders like ghosts and cats can sense them. Yeah. God, all I want is that prop from the show about like the flyer about having a cat. I want that (laughs) so bad. I just want a poster of it on my wall. Not a poster size though, like smaller. That was another one of the weird things in the interview that they talked about how like the mail on the, on the, you know, bureau or whatever in 35 Portland row Mm. is said that if you would have opened up the letters, they would be to like, Mr. Lockwood, this is your final notice that you owe us blah, 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 money that it was like all written out. It wasn't just like blank sheets of paper in there, but even though it's never on camera, like that's just how they made it. Yeah. Shows and movies do that sort of thing all the time. Like things nobody will ever see. Oh, props. People are intense. Yeah. That's art. So, then we they talk about the after the dude leaves they talk about what's going on and what they think is happening and then eventually George starts saying, you know, it can be a risky business being a listener, blah blah blah. Somebody jumped in the Thames, and I'm just like, <laughs> wow, George, wow. He just doesn't have those, you know, this sense of like what's appropriate. <laughs> like There's no boundaries. Just because of who you are, you might kill yourself. Right. Just just FYI, Lucy. Good luck with your life. Yeah. Although, of course, Lucy is like, Marissa Fitz had my kind of talent too, which I think is the first we learn about that. And she didn't jump anywhere. And then they go check it out. George is immediately like, obviously, it was the Blitz. And I feel like uh, maybe that's the answer he gives for everything. Because I feel like in London, you know, 50% of the time you'd be right. Eh, it was the Blitz. Yeah, I I like this a lot. Um Although it does feel a little bit out of character for George that he's like kind of jumping to a conclusion. He does Um, mention that Lockwood didn't give them any time. So true. Yeah. I think the point here is that like this is so it's doing two things. So it's doing the thing that you're saying about like the Blitz ghost that lets us know as readers that like, oh, even this. So the Blitz happened in this world. World War Two was a thing. Yeah. It tells us how far the alternate history, like where do the divergences happen? It's after World Nazis War II. Nazis exist. That's always great. Right. Yeah. Um, and that uh, even things from like before the problem are still able to like manifest as as part of the whole situation here. Uh, but then the other thing that it's doing, the second thing that it's doing is like George jumps to this conclusion, but then Lucy has a better idea. So this like shows us that Lucy is a good detective, too. Yes. And it's nice that we do get this one small job for the team coming together. Yeah, it's not too intense. Yeah. Um, it's not very dangerous. It's mainly to go back over all the rules for us so that they're like really imprinted in us mm-hmm. as readers. Uh, and to give a little bit of extra lore, like, you know, the spiders and cats and stuff like that. Yeah. But we're we're going over like it gets colder you know, here and there and and things like that that we already covered in the first part. Yeah. I just have one last note 
Did you have anything else? I, I, I had a thing here about you'd think the problem would make people consider their immortal souls, Lockwood said. But for the rich, it has the opposite effect. This is when they're back home. Um, they go out, they dress up, they spend all night dancing in a sealed hotel somewhere, thrilling with horror at the thought of visitors lurking outside. And just like the denial of adult culture and of um, the rich culture and just how, like we talked about death drive in the, in the show. Right. And that's, that's kind of death drive is like the rules all say do this. And then what feels good is, is breaking those rules and like doing what's stupid because like, that's where pleasure is. So all the rich people get to like party all night while the regular people hide. <laughs> My note on that was they sort of changed the wording of it in the show. Cause in the show, Lockwood says, you know, you'd think they'd be scared or I, I don't remember the actual line, but that's what he's implying that they'd be scared of the ghosts, but actually it just makes them more party-ish. But here he says, worried about their immortal souls as though somehow partying is, you know, Christian moralistically wrong and Lockwood uh -huh. would care about that. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I'm yeah. like, mm, I don't. That's yeah. He doesn't. That's not what he's worried about. Yeah. I don't know. I don't like that wording. I I liked the change in the show that they made there. It's it's mm -hmm. weird to me that he would phrase it that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially since I think you're right. for a show about dead people and like what happens after you die for a show, for a, ser a book series about dead people and what happens after you die, religion comes into it very little, mm -hmm. which I think is the correct choice. Mm -hmm. and it, but so it's just interesting that it does crop up in that moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a little a little stodgy. It might be an act too, though. You know what I mean? Like, I'm, he's trying to be. A yeah, I'm sure there. he doesn't like actually think that. Like, he's not. Right. He he's not worried for his immortal soul, definitely. Right. But I don't know. I don't know. I just don't like it. It, it it's weird to me. <laughs> there there was something more important that I did take a note of mm -hmm. a little bit later. Oh, where they talk about the whole fourth grade thing. Oh and, yes. Yeah, that she didn't actually pass her fourth grade and i think what's important about this is that lockwood knows a truth about lucy that she is kind of ashamed of but then he accepts her anyway and this is an like important for them bonding and mm -hmm. it's contrasted by george who seems to like not accept anything about her and she doesn't accept anything about him like lockwood accepts lucy for who she is, even though she lied to him. And even though there's like this thing that she feels like I'm not a good enough agent or whatever, because I don't have this certification. He's like, you are a good enough agent. Like you're, you're already awesome. So I think all of that's like pretty important. Mm -hmm. I, I like that moment too. Uh, my last note is about, is on the last page here when Lockwood, uh, when they're talking about George and <laughs> Lockwood says that um, that he dislikes hypocrites, you know, people who say nice things to your face and criticize you behind your back. And he takes pride in being the reverse. <laughs> so I like that. And I wrote down that this is the most teenage shit. Yeah. Because he was like, well, I don't want to be like that, but I also don't want to be genuine. Right. So, I can't. Yeah. I can't, I can't be vulnerable. Yeah. No, I don't. I definitely don't want that. Mm. So I'm just going to be an asshole. <laughs> And then say good things about you when you're not around. Right. Because that makes <laughs> sense. <laughs> that is the most teenage thing. Yeah. You're right. <laughs> uh, I, 
I don't even think of it as like, I can't be vulnerable. I just, for me, even as a teenager, being genuine ever to anyone? No. Yeah, yeah. I, I, if you're genuine, that's being vulnerable because then people can reject you and you'd be like, oh, they really rejected me. No, I guess. I guess yeah. Oh, yeah. maybe I'd like so buried it so far that it didn't. Eh, let's not go to therapy anyway. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's that one really struck me. Maybe I'm more like George than I want to admit. Oh, I'm very. Yeah, I'm very like every everything is an act. Yeah. Yeah. Because then you can reject the act and it'd be like, well, you didn't reject me. Um, yeah, that's classic. Uh, saying good things behind your back. I feel like that is not what happens in the show, right? Like we see a lot of scenes with Lockwood and George and Lucy's not there. And George is like, we got to fire her. She is a real problem and all of this kind of stuff. So they don't really do this in the show. No, but they wanted, I think in the show they wanted to have, they have that moment where George flips on Lucy, yeah. you know, after they go for Italian. <laughs> right. Where he knows her better. Yeah. Yeah. That's such a good observation, though, that it's a teenage persona thing. It's, yeah, makes me think Stroud was channeling himself a little bit because it just rings so true. Uh huh. Oh, like right after that, I had something highlighted because um, mm -hmm. he's talking about how George worked at Fitz and how they valued um, courtesy, secrecy and discretion, mm -hmm. which is like a joke about George. Like he's none of these things. But it does just kind of highlight once again how the adult run agencies are all about procedure and and how Lucy doesn't fit into that and how Lockwood and co are just all about something different and like working against that procedure is what the that's why George is part of the team because he doesn't do that right yeah why Lucy is here is because she couldn't get a job at those places so like it's an it's funny, but it's also like actually important. And then the very last line in this whole chapter is also like funny and ironic uh, because this is like Lockwood laughed. There's no hope about it with our combined talents. What could possibly go wrong? And like, remember how the house is on fire and we had to jump out and, like, yes. and the ghost was attacking us. So there's like a lot of irony on that line. That that feels like like a trope, you know, like you've read that sort of thing a million times somebody goes what could go wrong everything yeah. everything can go wrong but the funny thing is it's already gone wrong because yeah like, that's true because <laughs> this is the past and so we and that's like the perfect transition to go back go back yeah which we will do next time when we read the necklace part three i did want to talk a little bit last time i talked about like the lore of silver and iron and stuff and i, I wanted to do that right, again yeah. to talk about salt a little bit and like why that would be a thing at all because there is lore around salt and like i think we all know you know with the amount of sodium in our diets as modern people that like salt helps things to not rot mm -hmm. um, and that's why it's a preservative in all of our food and i mean it also just tastes real good it does taste good i love salt you can imagine like the first person who like licked that rock and they were like whoa this is the best <laughs> I think about shit like this all the time because this is so wildly off topic. But like, who was the first person who took an egg and then like took the yellow bit out and then was like, wait, a meringue. This is how cool. do you figure yeah. that out? <laughs> yep. Sorry. Yep. I know. I Anyways, think about that all the time, too. Sorry. Carry on. Yeah. So they would have noticed the same way that I talked about with silver, that you keep the water in silver and it doesn't go rancid, that when you have salt on food and stuff, 
it doesn't rot. And you would associate like disease and rot with, you know, supernatural bad forces. And so this is kind of an anti-supernatural bad forces kind of material. And so it just gets supernatural qualities ascribed to it because it helps you to stay healthy and, and not yeah. sick. So it's and it's kind of like a universal thing in human culture all over the world with societies that didn't communicate with each other. We just we were like, yeah, salt is anti ghost shit that we just all believe that um, anti supernatural in general. Yeah. Yeah. Even good. Yeah, that's true. Even like good ghosts and stuff. They don't like it. And then lavender has like kind of a similar thing. Again, it's like it's a natural insect repellent and uh, you can use like lavender on, you know, like irritated skin and it has a good medical effect. And so like anything that keeps you healthy, that keeps away, it has a good smell to it. And there was like a whole theory for a while, especially in Europe of miasma. So like bad smells make you sick, good smells um, keep you healthy. And so lavender like has, has like a lot of associations with good health and therefore like it's anti-death, anti just again, like supernatural things make you sick. And so this material keeps away the supernatural bad guys. So it has a magical aura to it. I like I knew some of these things about lavender, but I've never seen it used in fiction this way. Yeah, me neither. Or yeah. or even like in folklore at all. Which is interesting because yeah. all the other ones kind of were inspired by folklore. Yeah, I've never I've never seen it either. And you usually see like some kind of herbalist character, usually a woman or a witch who will like use a woman things. or a witch. Well, you know, like sometimes a, she's not a witch. She's just an herbalist. I don't no, know. I know. I know what you're saying. Carry <laughs> on. Yeah, but I've never seen it like so widespread um, to like have a plant used this way. I think it's super creative. It's very cool. I love how they use it in the show. Like the, yes. the little sprigs will show up all the time. And I'm like, yeah. oh, it's so smart. When, yeah, the one that like Marissa, not Marissa, Penelope Fitz is wearing on her coat at the funeral. Mm -hmm. It's very prominent. It kind of remi reminds me in America, like how we have the stupid politicians have the American flag pin. And to be like, I care about ghost culture because um, I have this thing. Oh, this felt more to me, like same idea, but it felt more to me like how in Britain and Canada, and I have to assume other Commonwealth countries like um, Australia, New Zealand, that sort of thing. Uh, we wear poppies in November for Remembrance Day. It felt exactly mm, like that. Yep. Yeah, the same kind of thing. And like as soon as November 1st hits, um, if you're on the news or if you're like a politician, anywhere, anywhere ever, you have to have a poppy on or people will judge you. Yep. Yeah, that's what I mean. It's like performative, right? Yeah. Um, but that it does have an actual material effect on the ghosts in the world. Like it's measurable and real. And from that, we're going to go into best joke. I don't have a worse joke this week. I only have one good one. I feel there like there's so many. There were jokes. so many. Uh, I am going to go with mine because you don't sound ready. Okay. Um, I was actually, I had skipped over it purposely when we were talking about it, but then you brought it up and I was like, oh, but that's oh, fine. Sorry. But it was, it's the, you know, I thought you were psychic joke, you know. <laughs> it's so good. How he's like, <laughs> how Lucy says, you know, I haven't brought you any donuts. And he's like, well, what makes you say that? <laughs> and then <laughs> George told me about your daily deliveries. Oh, like for a moment there, I thought you were psychic. And Lucy, like I pictured as being 100% deadpan. I am, you know, 
And then Lava just being like, I mean, in the, you know, never mind, never mind, moving on. Yeah, I can't believe they didn't do this in the show because it's so good. It's like perfectly, it's a perfectly calibrated like conversation joke. Yeah, that's, that's my favorite. I'm trying to find it. Well, it's like they did this one in the show and they did it perfectly. And it makes me laugh every single time I reread it, even though I know it's coming. It's the whole thing between George and Lucy of where it's like the feisty and and all of that stuff. Right. But it's specifically when she's like, we'll get up out of that chair. And and then he's like, it's a deep chair. Maybe I am trying to. I can't remember how he does. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But it's the whole thing of like, it's a deep chair. I'm (laughs) it makes me laugh every time. I'm not a coward. You're a coward. Um, It's just very brother sister. It's exactly my humor. I don't know. You know, now that you say that, I I feel like describing somebody's face as uniquely slappable is the ultimate sibling insult. Yeah. Yeah. They have that energy immediately. Yeah. I and I do like that. There's no jokes here where I was like, oh, that's bad. Don't do that. Yeah. No, I. I they're all pretty funny. Yeah. They're all pretty good. Did you have uh, most punk rock? I feel like it's exactly from the show. It's, that was my thinking also. Yeah, it's and it's even more punk rock, really, because they were just like, well, you'll just go back to work. And without saying anything to anybody, she just packs up and leaves. Yeah. (laughs) And I liked how she Oh, I should have looked it up. I liked how she phrased it. Uh, Oh, uh, it was universally expected that after a short rest to get over the incident. Oh, my God. Fuck them. I would happily (laughs) I would happily rejoin him. That wasn't my opinion. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I had a different thought. Yeah. Yeah. That's so good. Lucy is a badass. So if you want to reach out to us on Twitter, you can at Lockwood Podcast. If you want to reach out to me in particular, you can at Inferior Caitlin. And if you want to reach out by sending an email, go to, uh, well, you just send it to contact at hollowedgroundmedia.com. Or you can go to our website and the contact page, hollowedgroundmedia.com slash contact. And remember to always inspire 10-year-olds to have an existential crisis about their place in the cog of the world and capitalism and blah, 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 blah. That's what I did do with my daughters. Yeah. Have I ever told you that this is this is so off topic, but I do have a slight speech impediment. Oh yeah? No, I haven't I, you will, I don't know that. If I point it out, you'll probably be able to notice it. I'm really bad with R's. Huh. I can't That's just uh, a Canadian thing. Isn't well it? maybe, but I had to go to speech therapy when I was a kid because oh, I man. was like I was full on wabbit, you know? Oh. Couldn't do it. I was like eight. It's like um Barbara Walters or something. Yeah. Um no, so I even now like, I, I can't roll my R's or do anything fancy with an R, and I have trouble with some words like Aurora. Uh-huh. I can't. Mm-mm, don't That's like it. That's a hard it. one anyway, though.
So, you know, some words are just out there to get us. 